Praise God. I tell you, it, it, I tell you, church, it does my heart good just to move over. Oh, it's going to be that. It's going to be that thing again, aren't I? Do I go back? Is that all right? That's a little bit better, isn't it? Just pray that I don't trip over the speaker behind me. Praise God. I tell you, it does my heart so good just being in the house of God with the Lord's children and the Lord's people. It's so encouraging, isn't it? Praise God. So just as we come around the Lord's word, shall we just bow our heads and come before him in prayer? Father, we want to thank you that you are so good. We want to thank you, Father, that not only, Lord God, do you adopt us into your family, but you make us family of one another, Lord Jesus. That even though we hail, Father, from different parts of the world, different cultures, different backgrounds, and yet, God, we are unified in you. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray now that just as we have been worshipping this morning and as we turn our attention to your word, Holy Spirit, we ask, will you open hearts and minds Father, that we will be receptive to all that you want to speak this morning. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that, Lord, that you will open us, God, and, Lord, begin to infuse us and infuse us with more of you. Because, God, that is our heart's desire. We want more of you. So, Holy Spirit, come. Take these words and bring them alive, Lord God, in our hearts. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Now, when you hear the word idle, what comes to mind? Is it perhaps that show from the early 2000s called Pop Idol, where contestants were anointed by the one and only Simon Cow? Or is it perhaps the Greek gods like Zeus, Hermes and Poseidon, etc.? Or are you thinking more along the lines of the Hindu gods, gods like Ganesh, the elephant god, or Hanuman, the monkey god, or Kali, the goddess of death, who has four arms? Now, in our modern culture, images of people going into temples and bowing before statues may seem quite primitive. And although we may not actually worship an Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, but how many young people do we see, young women in particular, who are battling with eating disorders or looking to plastic surgery in order to emulate their favourite celebrities or influencers on social media? And we may not physically worship at the altar of Hermes, the god of riches, trade and good fortune. But how many in the pursuit of making their first million, as it were, are willing to sacrifice their family for the sake of wealth, power and prestige? That said... This morning I would like us to begin a new mini-series called The Idols of the Heart. And it has the subheading of money, sex and power. And you've probably guessed it. Today we are going to look at the idol of money. And for this series I have uh, gleaned some wonderful insights from various theologians like Tim Keller and others. And I pray it blesses you this day. 
And so if you have your Bibles with you, then please open up and come with me to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to read from chapter 19 and verses 1 to 10. And speaking of Jesus, it says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain, he's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him. Because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Hallelujah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Be to God. Now, just to put some meat on the bones, as it were, what exactly is an idol? Well, an idol is something that absorbs our heart and our imagination more than God. It is something that we give God-like status to and from which we draw our security, our significance and our self-worth from. And should we ever lose this idol, then life itself becomes meaningless and falls apart. In other words, an idol is whatever we look to and say in our heart of hearts. If only I had that car, that house, that spouse, and the list goes on, then my life would be complete. And I will have value and meaning, purpose and joy. Right? However, none of those things will ever bring us true joy. And if we try to pursue them with the wrong heart and intention then those very things will gradually begin to control us and enslave us. True? Which is why the all-knowing, omniscient God, knowing our plight, he gives us the first commandment. And he says, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, 2 and 3. Why? In order to release us from the grip of idolatry. You see, the reason we erect an idol in our hearts in the first place is because we have been designed by God to worship. And if God is not the primary object of our love, our devotion and our worship, then inadvertently we will enthrone something or someone else. 
And they will become our God or our idol. And eventually it will lead to our ruin. As Zacchaeus knew only too well. Now as you may know, in the first century, Israel was a conquered nation living under Roman occupation. And because it was, the Romans imposed heavy taxes on the people in order to transfer the nation's wealth back to Rome. And because the tax system depended on local officials who were often Jewish, well, they became the object of much scorn and resentment. And to give you a picture as to how much they were disliked, then... Just think of those Jews who betrayed their fellow countrymen to the Nazis during World War II. Or think of those South American drug lords who themselves live in the lap of luxury while their fellow countrymen are struggling to survive, addicted to their Class A poison. It's the ultimate form of betrayal, is it not? And this is why... Quite possibly, Zacchaeus became Jericho's most hated. Because he robbed his own people in order to serve Rome, the enemy, and to line his own pockets. You see, Rome expected a certain amount of tax from the people. And as long as that was delivered, tax collectors were free to impose an even higher tax so that they can cream off the top and any surplus. And they had the full backing of Rome to do such. And so, in the process of legitimate and illegitimate activity, tax collectors became exceedingly rich. In fact... Speaking of Zacchaeus, he wasn't just any old tax collector, but he is what they call an archetelonos, which is a chief tax collector, verse 2. In other words, he was the head honcho or the commissioner of taxes, which meant that every other tax collector would have to pay their due to him. Or if you like, he had a piece of everyone's pie, as it were. And so, as well as Zacchaeus being extremely wealthy, at the same time, he was extremely despised to the point where he couldn't even attend a local synagogue because he was considered unclean. Now, having heard all of that, Why on earth would anyone ever want to be a tax collector in the first century? I mean, what could possibly seduce one to betray their own countrymen and to live as an outcast among them, right? Very simply, it's the lure and the seduction of money. Which if gone unchecked, it has the potential to hijack our emotions, blind us from the truth and cause us to do the unthinkable, as was the case of Zacchaeus. 
However, despite being Jericho's most hated, there was also something about Zacchaeus. In that, he was searching. Verse 3, it tells us that he was trying to see who Jesus was. Because he must have heard the reports that this Jesus, he gives, he gives sight to the blind. He opens up the ears of the deaf and the lame are leaping for joy. And he wanted to see this Jesus for himself. Wow. But seeing the crowds, all jockeying for position, closing up the gaps... He also knew that there was no way that he is getting through that crowd because he was a short man. But knowing the route that the Lord is likely to take, he heads for the sycamore tree. Clever man. And throwing caution to the wind, he begins to climb. Praise God. Now, in order for us to really appreciate What's going on here? We have to consider this account through the lens of a first century Middle Eastern Jew. Because for a man of his age to climb a tree, well, quite frankly, it was frowned upon and it was considered shameful, especially in that honor-shame culture as we've previously touched upon. And by him doing such, it would mean that he would open himself up to a whole host of ridicule, abuse and scorn. But he didn't care. Because the Bible tells us that he wasn't just casual about seeing Jesus, but he was determined, almost desperate to see the Lord. Why? Because he knew deep down in his heart, what kind of person he was. In that he knew that he was considered a wretch among his own people, a parasite that bled them dry. And because of his crimes, no one would give him the time of day. He was alienated from God and cut off from any meaningful relationships. And although he had an abundance of wealth, however, there is clearly something missing in his life that money could not fulfill. And at the same time, there was something attractional about Jesus, which just drew him and he had to see. And then finally... His desire is more than realized. Verse 5. It says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. How cool is that? That the Lord just invites himself to his house. Perhaps... We should do the same, right? (laughs) Now, this would have been quite a jolt on two counts. Because firstly, the crowd gathered 
they would have been in utter disbelief and even disgust. Because according to them, they, um, no self-respecting Jew would ever dream of going into the home of a tax collector. Because to do as such was akin to being a party to their corruption and crime. Or if you like, they would be guilty by association. Secondly, not only was this a shock for the crowd, but it was also a jolt to the brain for Zacchaeus. In fact, I'm surprised that the scriptures never record that Zacchaeus never fell out of the tree when he heard the sovereign Lord of glory was coming to his house. Right? You see... Zacchaeus had been despised for such a long time when nobody befriended him, let alone stayed overnight and shared a meal with him. Because again, in that culture, to eat with someone, it was more than just grabbing a bite to eat. It meant friendship, acceptance and belonging. And no one was willing to do as such because of his treacherous profession. What's more is that even Zacchaeus wasn't expecting any of it either. And so, much to the dismay and disapproval of the crowd, Jesus was undeterred and he was staying with Zacchaeus. Why? Because he had made it clear that he was on the Father's mission and he was about the Father's business. And his sole purpose for coming to this earth was to seek and to save the lost. Hallelujah. And Zacchaeus was only too happy to receive him. Praise God. Verse 8. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Now, what has just happened to Zacchaeus here? Does anyone know? I mean, this master thief who spent his entire career on the take, accumulating from others, has now become an instant philanthropist and wants to give it all away. Why? One word, salvation, which is Jesus. When? How? Well, even though Luke doesn't record a conversation between the Lord and Zacchaeus, but that doesn't mean to say that a conversation never took place. Rather, scholars tell us that when Zacchaeus stood and when he called Jesus kurios or Lord in verse 8, He confessed to the Lordship of Christ. Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Amen. And the evidence of that confession or the fruit, if you like, of repentance is... I'll give half of my possessions to the poor Lord. And if I have extorted...
extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much glory to God. Now, where did this idea of restitution come from? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, Leviticus 6 or Numbers 5, we see that a fifth or 20% was the prescribed amount to return. That if you stole anything or if you defrauded your neighbor, then you paid it back plus 20%. And that would have been quite acceptable. Or according to Exodus 22, Verses 4 and 7, he could have paid back double and that would have been more than enough. However, Zacchaeus goes above and beyond and says, I will pay back four times as much. Why? Because he who is forgiven much, loves much and in turn wants to give much. Because salvation had come to his house. Glory to God. However, it still begs the question of why. Why was Zacchaeus so willing to part with his cash? Why? Because the idol of money had now been dethroned off of the seat of his heart. And now Jesus had been enthroned upon the heart of Zacchaeus. Glory. And that's where things begin to change. You see, Zacchaeus' heart was so affected by the goodness of God that the seduction and the lure of money, it lost its grip on him and it ceased to be his idol. Because now, King Jesus occupied that place as his Lord and Master, his God and his King. And so he was now no longer controlled by money because he had found freedom in Jesus. And I tell you, it is, there is such freedom when we do things God's way as opposed to our own. Can you relate? Now, a few years ago, Becky and I were traveling back from Australia after visiting family. And as we were pulling into the airport, um, I just had this tug in my heart just to give our final few dollars away to the taxi driver. And I'm like, Lord, we still got a few hours to go before we get our flight. What if I get thirsty and I need a drink? But I just had this sense that I had to give it away. And so as we pulled in, I just blessed the taxi driver in Jesus' name, and we we carried on. Later on, as we were about to board our plane, we approached the stewardess. She puts our name into the system, and all matter of fact, she says, you've just been upgraded to first class. Enjoy your flight. (laughs) And Becky and I, we're walking down the ramp, and we're looking at one another as if to say, did that just really happen? (laughs) Anyhow, to cut a long story short, 
we had the most amazing flight back home where we had a widescreen TV, Bose headphones, a reclining seat with a mattress topper on top, not forgetting food, drink and snacks on tap. It was great. Now, hear me right. I'm not saying that we got because we gave. Not at all. That's not what I am saying. But what I am saying is that there is blessing in obedience. And as we honor the Lord and put him first, not only does it release favor, but we also give no place for any idols in our hearts. And what's more is that we can never outgive God because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, it all belongs to him as we prayed this morning. Praise God. Now, a common question that pastors are often asked is how much should one tithe? That there is clear instruction in the Old Testament of 10%. And then they quickly follow it up with, under the new covenant, there are no specifics. But Paul says to give cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9. And they're right. However, I love what Keller says on this. And that he says, the reason we don't see specifics in the new, under the new covenant, is because tithing is a minimum standard for believers. And so we ought to give above and beyond. Why? Because have we received more or less of God's revelation than the Old Testament saints? And have we received more or less of his, of understanding of his salvation? More, right? So should we give less or more? What's more? Is did Jesus only tithe 10% of his lifeblood in order to save us? Or did he give it all? You see the point, right? And so it's in that spirit. That Paul says, let us give cheerfully. And as R.T. Kendall once put it, he says, it is only in God's goodness that he allows us to keep hold of the 90% of our income. And what's amazing is when we give 10% of our income, God causes the 90 to go even further than the 100% ever would because that is God's economy and God is no debtor to man. Amen. 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 You see, God doesn't want your money, but he wants your hearts. And as we give unto him, We amputate the idols of our heart and we demonstrate to the world that money is not our God, but Christ is. Amen. Amen. You see, Paul could have quite easily asserted his apostleship and he could have commanded the Corinthian church to give, but he doesn't. Rather, speaking of Christ's example, He says that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become 
rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You see, had Christ held on to his infinite wealth, we would have all died spiritually bankrupt. But thanks be to God that he came and he gave his only and only one begotten son in order to redeem us. Glory. So what Paul is saying is that he gave up his treasure in heaven to make us his treasure. Therefore, let us make him our treasure. And so, if we have unwittingly created an idol of wealth by perhaps drawing our sense of security and self-worth from, or if we are trusting in our wealth more than we are trusting in Jesus, then let us simply repent and let us return to Christ. And let us know that our value, it doesn't come from our bank balance, but it comes from our heavenly Father. And he knows our needs before we ask him, which is why he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things, material and otherwise, will be added unto you. Matthew six thirty-three. Alternatively, if we have made some poor decisions with our money and have made an idol out of it, believing that it will bring us happiness, but now feel trapped in debt, then can I just say that help is on hand. That there are some fantastic organizations like CAP and many others who can help you get debt free. So please, do not suffer in silence, but do reach out. There is help out there. Amen. Amen. Now, a point of clarification. I'm not saying that money is all evil and we need to steer clear from it. Not at all. Because we all need money to buy and sell, to live and work. And so in and of itself, it is not evil. But what the Apostle Paul warns against is the love of money, which is the root to all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 6.10 And so it's okay to have money, just as long as your money doesn't have you. Because you see, money is a poor master, but is a good servant. I'll say that again. Money is a poor master, but a good servant. And so rule over it and never allow it to rule over you. And like Zacchaeus, let us use our wealth and our money to the glory of God. By enthroning the Christ upon the seat of our hearts. And let us make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its idolatrous lusts. But being free in him. And as freely as we have received, 
Let us freely give and sow the seed of the gospel physically, spiritually, and even financially. And let us amputate the idols of our heart. And let us demonstrate to the world that money is not our God, but Christ is. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that, God, it's never an easy task, Lord, to be, Lord, addressing the idols, Father, which can easily, Lord, cling towards us. As Luther once said, that our heart is an idol-making factory. But, Lord Jesus, we come before you, and, Lord, we pray, God, that if we have, Father, erected any kind of idol apart from you, Lord, we pray that today that the grip and the power of it will be broken in our lives and that your children, Lord, will know freedom, Lord, from bondage. Because the thing with these idols is that they promise, Lord, the world, but they deliver absolutely nothing. And your scriptures tell us that those that they having eyes they cannot see, having ears they cannot hear, hands and feet they cannot move or walk, and those who worship them become like them, deaf, blind, and dumb. So, Father, we pray, God, will you expose those things that are perhaps in our hearts. And, Lord, we pray that as we move into a a new season, Lord God, a new academic year, and, Father, just a new season of, Lord, just work in autumn, etc. God, we ask that we will be able to step in with full confidence, God, that we can lean on you, we can rely on you and trust you because, God, you are no man's debtor and we can never outgive you. But that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, it all belongs to you. And like your word says, Father, give us neither poverty that we steal and blaspheme your name. Give us neither riches that we live in comfort and forget about you, but give us enough That, God, that we will be able to praise you, knowing, God, that, Father, that when we get to glory, the streets will be paved with gold, Lord. So, Father, we pray, help us to prize you above all, to treasure you, because that's what you did for us, Lord. So God, we do pray that you will perform, Lord. Pull out the the, the surgeon's knife, Lord, and begin to cut these things away from our hearts. And Lord, release us into the joy and the fullness that you have for us. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.